know, I think that uh, we all have items in our childhood that become kind of representative of memories and experiences. And I have a, a pair of needle-nose pliers with me this morning because these represent a period in my childhood. When, when I grew up as a kid, the, the first TV I can remember in our house that we had, we got from JCPenney's. It looked a little bit like this one. And uh, I was the remote control for that TV. I would get up and go over and change the channels. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of channels back then, so it didn't take a whole lot of work. But over time, uh, my brother and I, I guess we're a little bit rough on the TV. So you'll notice at the bottom of that TV in the bottom right hand corner is a little knob. And that was the knob that you'd pull out to, to turn it on and you push in to turn it off. And, and well, we guess we were, we were rough with that. So one day we grabbed the knob and the knob came with us. And so we said, oh my gosh, we broke the TV. What are we going to do? Well, my dad has a little bit of MacGyver in him. And so he went out to the garage and he got a pair of needle nose pliers and he said, guys, this is how we're going to turn the TV on from now on. We'd, we'd reach, our, reach our hand in with the pliers. We'd grab where the knob used to grab, and we'd pull it out. We'd push it in. That's how we turn the TV on. And, and this worked for us for well over a year. It was just how we watched TV until my aunt came to visit. And my, my aunt uh, showed up, and my aunt was single at the time. She didn't have any kids. She was very successful in her work as a lawyer. And so one night we sat down to watch TV and I got up and I got the, the pliers out like I normally did. And my aunt said, what are you doing? I'm like, uh, turning on the TV with pliers? I'm like, yeah, doesn't everybody turn on their TV with pliers? She's like, no, that's so weird. And I said, well, I just, my dad goes, if it's not broke, don't fix it. She says, but it is broke. You should fix it. And so, uh, so later that week, we had nephew time. She took us out to the movies. We saw that awesome 90s movie, Cool Runnings, in the theaters. It was awesome. I still love that movie. And uh, before we went to the movies, though, we went by Circuit City, and we got a TV, and we put it in the front porch, and we played Ding Dong Ditch, and then ran off. And when we got home from Cool Runnings, we had a new TV sitting there that didn't require needle-nose pliers. And to this day, this is a pair uh, I got from our office at Rosser, but I still have a pair at home. And whenever I pull these out, I think of that. TV. Now, now, it wasn't that big of a deal back then that we used pliers for our TV, but I was thinking about that as I got into preparing this message, because I think there is a component to that story that is true, certainly in the passage of Scripture we're going to look at today, but I think it's true in all of our lives. I think there are places in all of our lives where we've developed something that works for us to respond to what's not okay in our lives. And here's how I would put it in terms of a question. What is broken in your life that you've become overly comfortable with and accepted? I wonder if there's something in your life that's a little bit like that TV. It's broken, it doesn't work, it's not okay, it's not good, and you've just over time become comfortable with it and accepted it. And the challenge is, is that sometimes those things are far more important than a TV. And they're far more impactful than a TV not working. And sometimes the things that become broken in our lives that we become overly comfortable with and accept hold us back from all that God has for us. And we level off or settle for a kind of life that God never intended for us to live. 
And that's what we're going to see today as we dive into our message. We're in a series this summer called Relentless. We're working our way through the section of scripture known as the minor prophets. And we're seeing how God is relentless with his people. He's relentless in pursuing them. He's relentless in showing them mercy. He's relentless in sending prophet after prophet after prophet and sending the same message over and over again until they receive it. It's somewhat comforting for those of us who are a little bit thick and need to get a message multiple times in multiple ways from God because that's what happens here in the minor prophets. We're taking a book of the Minor Prophets each week, and we're teaching through it on Sunday, and then we're reading through it during the week. If you don't have a copy of the reading plan, you can get one of these in the lobby. We still have a few copies left, and it gives you a guide each day of the week to read uh, through that particular book. If you're watching online, you'll find that guide on the worship resources page if you click the button that says Sermon Extras. Today, we're going to be in the book of Micah, and I want to give you a little bit of background on our friend Micah. Micah was born in a city named Morsheth, and Morsheth is down here southwest of Jerusalem. It's close to a city called Gath, and if you've ever studied the Bible, you know the name of the city of Gath because it's the home of Goliath, the Philistine who David defeated with his slingshot. That's the town that, that Micah is from, and he goes and he preaches both in the north to Samaria and in the south to Jerusalem over a period of 50 years, between 750 and 700 B.C. That's the period that that Micah preaches both to the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And and during that time, he also is a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, uh, whose prophet book of prophecy is a lot longer than Micah's. Micah's is only seven chapters. And as, as I've been studying Micah in preparation for this message, here's what I feel like the big idea is that Micah is trying to communicate. That what God requires of his people is simple, but it's not easy. What God requires of his people is, is simple, but it's not easy. And I think many times when we hear the word simple, we translate that in our minds automatically to easy. Oh, it's It's simple. It's no big deal. It's easy. But what I found in life is some of the simplest things are actually the hardest things. Sometimes the simplest things are actually the most demanding, the most difficult. And sometimes we like to make things more complex so that they're easier to us. But what we're going to see today is what God calls his people to. What he requires of his people is simple, but it is nowhere close to easy. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you this morning to open up to the book of Micah. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the, the minor prophets are about uh, two-thirds of the way into the Bible. So you can either turn to the book of Psalms in the middle of your Bible and head towards the back, or you can turn towards the book of Matthew near the back and come towards the front. Micah follows the book of Jonah. That's where we were last week. It's before the book of Nahum. That's where we're going to be next week. And and I'm going to kind of break my pattern a little bit today. Typically, I would read to you from the very first part of the book, but we're going to be near the end of the book today and then work our way back. We're going to start today by reading Micah 6, 6 through 8. And I want to invite you to stand as we start this message by reading God's word together. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we'll have it on the screen for you to follow along. So Micah says, what should I bring before the Lord? When I come to bow before God on high, should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? 
Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offspring of my body for my own sin? Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you, to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus, I pray today that we would have ears to hear what it is you're speaking to us and that we would see how you're calling us to live in this day and this moment. And I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated this morning. Now, as we work our way through the book of Micah, we're going to learn three lessons today about this simple but not easy message. And here's the first thing we're going to learn. The people in the book of Micah, they had failed to do what God required. The people in the book of Micah had failed to do what God required. Micah 6, 8 begins, this is what is good, and this is what the Lord requires of you. And what follows is what God was requiring and calling his people to do. And, and if you read through the book of Micah this week, as we're encouraging you to do, what you'll see is the people had failed to do this. It was a really simple calling, but it wasn't easy. And we know it wasn't easy because they were struggling to do it. And, and what God was calling and requiring his people to do was really threefold. First, there was an outward component of what he was calling them to do. And, and, and that outward component is he was calling them to do justice. Now, I know that the word justice today is a politically charged term. I know that in our 21st century American culture, this is a, a term that has been grabbed by some people to be part of their political agenda. But I want to encourage you to set aside those political filters you have and hear the words in the context we're talking about them today in their biblical context. The, the word justice in English is a translation of a Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word that Micah would have spoken, as somebody who spoke Hebrew, is the word mishpat. Say that with me, mishpat. Mishpat is one of two Hebrew words for justice. And in this instance, Micah, Micah chooses the word mishpat. And the word mishpat means, means something very specifically. In his book, Generous Justice, Tim Keller defines mishpat. He says, mishpat's most basic meaning is to treat people equitably. It means acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of the case, regardless of their race or social status. So we're going to treat people in a, a legal setting not according to their race, not according to their social status or their wealth, but according to whether they are innocent or guilty. Everyone who does the same wrong should be given the same penalty. He goes on, but mishpat means more than just punishment of wrongdoing. It also means giving people their rights. Mishpat is giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection or care. So whether somebody's having their worst day ever and they've done something that's worthy of taking them into the legal system to be held accountable for, whether they're just having a run-of-the-mill day, or whether they're having their best day ever, they are deserving of mishpat, of justice. And so what, what Mike is saying is, as the people of God, what does God require of us? What is good? To do justice, to treat people equitably, regardless of their race or social status. 
We're called in the outward domain of our lives to do justice. And what you see when you read the book of Micah, as well as the rest of the minor prophets, is the people in that time struggled to do that. They often showed partiality towards some people and not to others. They played favorites. They had biases and prejudices. And Micah's saying, no, what God requires of you outwardly is to do justice. There's an inward component, he says here, and that's to love mercy. He said, inwardly, you need to love mercy. And, and the word that's in your Bible may be mercy, may be faithfulness, may be loving kindness. It's one of the most significant words in the Old Testament. We've hit on it before in this series. It's the word hesed. And the word hesed is the Hebrew word for mercy, loving kindness, faithful love, covenant love. This is the love that God has for us. And I want to remind you, God does not love you the way you love other people. God loves us because he created us. This covenant love he has towards his people is because he chose to love them that way. And, and God loves us not because we're worthy of it. The book of Romans says that God loves us and sent his son Christ to die for us while we were sinners. So it's not because we were just overwhelmingly deserving of his love. It's because it's who he is in his character. And what Mike is saying is you are to love like God loves. You are to love what God loves. You are to love with God's love. So often we live in a world where we love the opposite of mercy. We love letting people have it. We love winning and then dancing on those people's grave. We, we love harshness. And yet here, Micah is saying, no, love mercy, love kindness, love hesed. That's the inward reality. But there's an upward reality too. He also says, you are to do justice, love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. That in your relationship with God, you are to walk humbly with him. And that word humbly is, is a, a Hebrew word that is only used in this place in Scripture as, a, as a, a, an adjective. It's also used in the book of Proverbs, but here when he says walk humbly with God, he's using the word sana, which is also translated modestly. And this word is so important that I wanted you to, to have a visual picture of it. So I'm going to invite my friend Hans out here right now. He's sitting backstage. Hans was playing electric guitar in the band this morning. Now, uh, Hans, as you might be able to tell, is taller than me. Hans, you're 6'4". Okay, I'm 5'9", so do the math, that's 7 inches. So if he was here next to me, he would already tower over me. But I'm standing here today on this lower platform. He's on this taller platform. He's well over a foot taller than me. I feel a little bit small compared to Hans. Now, I just want you to imagine for a second, and I've asked Hans to not get a big head over this. In this illustration, Hans is going to play God. Okay, so I want you to imagine that I am walking humbly with God. Now, I know Hans loves holding my hand. This is super awkward. But, but we're going to walk across the stage right now. And I just want you to know that I am humbled by Hans's height. Thank you, Hans, for helping me out with that awkward illustration this morning. You can give Hans a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you, Hans. And the reason why I feel modest is because Hans is way taller than me. But if I was walking along with my nine-year-old son next to me, I might not be modest. Why? Because I'm taller than him. And this is the thing. 
we can only walk humbly with God when we are comparing ourselves to God. Because compared to God, there is room for nothing but modesty. Oh, you think you're powerful compared to God? Oh, you think you're wealthy compared to God? You think you're loving compared to God? You think you're creative or resourceful or imaginative compared to God? Oh, you think you've accomplished some things in life compared to God? The reason why so many of us struggle with arrogance and pride and that we're not living in humility and modesty is we're comparing ourselves to the wrong standard. And here Micah is saying, if you always compare yourself to the ultimate standard that is God, you will walk humbly Because compared to God, there is only room for modesty. That's the upward component. What does God require of you? What is good? Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. And we'll see in the book of Micah today that the people failed to do this. Starting back in the beginning in Micah 1, he writes, All of this judgment will happen because of Jacob's rebellion and the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Isn't it Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Isn't it Jerusalem? Basically saying your cities are the personification of your wickedness, your lack of justice, your lack of mercy, your lack of humility. In chapter 2, he says, Woe to those who dream up wickedness and prepare evil plans on their beds. He's like, you guys can't even get out of bed in the morning. And you're you're already failing at this. At morning light, they accomplish it. Wickedness and evil plans because the power is in their hands. They covet fields and seize them. They also take houses. They deprive a man of his home, a person of inheritance. So right here in Micah 1 and in Micah 2, Micah's describing the failure of the people. And he will continue throughout chapters 3 and 4. By the time we get to Micah 6, Micah's saying on behalf of the people, what should we do about this? We've failed miserably to do what is good and what you've required of us. And as I read earlier from Micah 6, he's saying, so what should I bring before the Lord when I come before him on high? What should I do in response to this? God, what do you want from us in light of the fact that we failed? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with year old calves? That was part of their worship. We no longer have sacrifices on on Sunday, (laughs) on worship time because of what Christ did, but that was how they practiced. And he's like, should I bring 10,000 or 1,000? And what he's trying to say here is that their tendency was to look at a moment of failure and go, how do I go to the temple and worship my way out of it? But as soon as he raises this question in Micah 6, we read Micah 6, 8. What does God require? Does God require offerings and offerings and offerings? No. What does God require? Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with God. What Micah is trying to help them understand is something that we still struggle with today. That God is concerned about all of our lives. See, there has been a tendency from the very beginning of the Bible to today to just think that God cares about what happens in these worship moments. And in these holy places. And and the way to remedy things is to do things there so that you're good everywhere else. 
But what we see here is the solution to them failing to do what God requires is not to change how they act at the temple, but to change how they live everywhere. See, God isn't merely concerned with what happens from the moment you turn off of the 89 and are directed into a parking spot here. God isn't merely concerned with what happens when you turn on the live stream on Sunday morning. God is concerned with all of your life. And worship begins long before Sunday. Worship begins long before you arrive in this place. That's why there is this outward and inward and upward calling. It isn't just walk humbly with God. It's also do justice to other people. And this is why so many people today are wrestling with their faith. They're going through things like deconstruction and abandoning the faith. Because so often what they've seen is a compartmentalized faith, not an all-of-life faith. And this is what Micah is talking about. He continues in chapter 3. He says, Then I said, Now listen, leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, aren't you supposed to know what is just? I mean, they're kind of the leaders. They should know what the standard is. He said, But you hate good and love evil. You tear off people's skin and strip their flesh from their bones. It's a little bit violent for a Sunday morning. Listen to this, you leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert everything that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with injustice. The second lesson we're going to learn from Micah is that God is going to judge and discipline them because of his love for them. What we see in the book of Micah is not only does God, through Micah, reveal the ways in which the people have failed to live the way he's calling them to live, but he says, I'm going to judge and discipline you as a result. And, and those people had a hard time swallowing that. In the same way that we have a hard time swallowing that. And yet God is a God who disciplines his people Sometimes as, as followers of Jesus, people who live on, on this side of the cross, who have the New Testament, who go, man, this Old Testament stuff, this stuff from the prophets, yeah, that, that, that's not really stuff for us anymore. But the same thing that's happening here in Micah is also playing out in the New Testament. In the book of Hebrews, we, we read this, this, this word of counsel. In struggling against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. Why? For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he punishes every son he receives. The fact that God is disciplining his people is an expression of love. If he didn't love them, he wouldn't care about what they were doing or be committed to them living any differently. And so when God brings discipline in our lives, whether we're the people of God in the book of Micah or the people of God today, it is a sign that God loves you. And yet many of us resist the discipline of God. We have no problem with God loving us. We have no problem with God encouraging us. We love when God shows us grace and mercy. But when God brings discipline, we resist it. 
I mean, question for you. Do you embrace God's discipline when it comes? Or do you kick against it? Is your God only a God who can bring love or can he also bring discipline? And and what Hebrews tells us is that God disciplines those he loves so it shouldn't discourage us when he corrects us and calls us out. It should encourage us because he loves us enough to do that. Now, the people in the book of Micah, they had a really hard time with Micah. If you're like, man, this summer's been hard, Scott. This book has been hard. You're not alone. Here in the book of Micah, they struggle with it. In Micah 2.6, they say to Micah, quit your preaching. I'm glad nobody has yelled that today, but that's what they said back then. Quit your preaching, they preach. They should not preach these things. Shame will not overtake us. They didn't want to hear what Micah had to say. They didn't want to hear this word of reproach and discipline. In, in verse 7, he says, House of Jacob, should it be asked, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these things he does? Don't my words bring good to those who walk uprightly? Basically, what he's saying is if, is if these words were good to you, you would not resist it. But the fact that you're resisting it is a sign that these words are for you. There's, a, there's an old pastor's line about if you throw a, a, a rock at a group of dogs, the one that yelps is the one you hit. And sometimes, you know, we yelp because something was convicting. We yelp because, oh man, that landed too close to home. Sometimes we protest, I don't like that. Because it challenges something within us. Here he says, if a man comes to you and utters empty lies, I will preach to you about wine and beer. He would be just the preacher for this people. If the preacher came and shared stuff that you already believed and you liked, you'd be saying amen, amen, amen. But he's saying, you're not saying amen to me. Because I'm telling you things that you don't want to hear. And he continues in chapter 3. Yet they lean on the Lord saying, isn't the Lord among us? No disaster will overtake us. As a result, I have begun to strike you severely, bringing desolation because of your sins. In verse uh, chapter 6, he says, You will eat but not be satisfied. There will be hunger within you. What you acquire, you can't save. What you save, I will give to the sword. You will sow in the ground but not reap. You will press olives but not anoint yourself with oil. You will tread grapes but not drink the wine. Over and over and over what Micah says is, This is not going to work out well for you. And the more you resist, the harder it will be. God's going to bring judgment and discipline. And this is one of the reasons why a lot of us avoid the minor prophets. We avoid the minor prophets because it's got some harsh content. Many of us would not normally read through this section of scripture if we weren't going through a series like this. But, but I think that we need to lean into it because we need to be reminded that God is still in the business of disciplining his people. And so I encourage you, I'm grateful that you're here and you're listening, you're leaning in. Maybe you haven't been in the minor prophets before. Maybe this is hard for you, but I think it's important. And here's why. If I told you today that I had come to the conviction that there were parts of the Bible that were no longer true. If I told you, yeah, there's some stuff over here that, that that's worth trusting in. There's some stuff over here. You can kind of get rid of it and move beyond it. I probably would not be preaching next Sunday. Just hazarding a guess. We have some good elders. They hold me accountable. They'd make sure that I wasn't teaching the word of God to you if I said, hey, parts of it aren't true. But while none of us would really go, that's something that a pastor should say, functionally, 
That's how a lot of us live. We say, hey, man, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it's all true. But that's not how we interact with the Bible. A lot of us have what I would call our smaller Bible. And that's the part of the Bible that we hang out in. We tend to read the book of Genesis, some stuff in the Psalms and the Proverbs, the words of Jesus, some of Paul's epistles. And many of us, while we believe that every book in this thing is true, we don't interact with the Bible as if it's all true. We interact with the parts of the Bible that we like and enjoy. Some people have called it our functional Bible. There is the full Bible, and then there's the part that we tend to function in. And I want to ask you this question today, how small is your Bible really? I mean, do you embrace the whole thing, even the parts that are uncomfortable? Do you embrace the whole thing, even the parts that challenge and confront you? Or have you begun to kind of shrink your Bible down to the places that reaffirm what you already believe? And if it's all the Word of God, and I believe it is, and if it's all true, and I believe it is, then we need to lean into those parts that are difficult and discipline us so that we don't end up like the people in Micah who are like, quit your preaching. We don't want to hear this. Here's a third lesson from Micah. There's a reason for hope and an expectation of blessing in the future. See, all throughout the Minor Prophets, one of the things that we get tempted to believe is that it's all harsh, it's all judgment, it's all bad, and that's not true. In each of these books, there is a a resounding message of hope and something that points us to the future, expecting and anticipating the blessing and the work of God. And in the book of Micah, there is that too. And it's in the part of Micah that's also well-known. The the passage we read at the beginning, Micah 6.8, is well-known. I've got part of it on my shirt. For many people, I know it's their favorite verse in the Bible. It's their life verse. But one of the most well-known passages is also a passage of hope. Micah 5, 2 through 4, where it says, Bethlehem Ephrathah. This is the passage that's often read at Christmas time. You are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the ruler's brothers will return to the people of Israel. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord, in the majestic name of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. This passage, Micah 5, 2, 3, and 4, is a prophecy about the Messiah, who we know as Jesus. And Micah is reminding these people that they are going to go through a season of judgment, and discipline. They're going to see Samaria and the northern kingdom of Israel fall. They're going to see Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah fall. They're going to go through incredible hardship, exile. But one will come from Bethlehem, a small town, who will be their hope. And they were looking ahead to that hope in Jesus. But we look back at the work Jesus did, and we look ahead at the work that Jesus promises to do, and he is our hope. And while that hope did not remove the hard days that were ahead for this people, Micah wanted them to know that there was one who was coming who would be their hope. 
But he doesn't just stop there. He continues in chapter 7. He says, but I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will stand up. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I must endure the Lord's fury until he champions my cause and establishes justice for me. He will bring me into the light and I will see his salvation. And then Micah ends the book by talking about the character of God. He says, who is a God like you? Forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not hold to his anger forever, but he delights in faithful love. That's the word hesed there. You read, read earlier. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanish our iniquities, vanquish our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. The book ends with this call not to put our character, our, our hope in our circumstances, but to put our character, our hope in the character of God. To say what's, what's not going to change is the character of God. What's not going to change is God's promise to us. And though we go through the darkness, the darkness always leads to the morning. It ends with this message of hope. And I think that's important because I think a lot of us struggle with hope. I know I do. There was a season when I first started serving in, in church ministry about 15 years ago where I really struggled with hope. I think I came in naive. It's part of being young. You kind of have rose-colored glasses when it looks at the world. And, and what I saw inside the church, sadly, was so much hypocrisy. So much brokenness. I saw behind the curtain, saw who people really were. And I struggled. I, I became cynical. And I can remember sitting down with a man who was in our church. He'd experienced the life-transforming power of Jesus. I, I baptized him. His name was Michael. He's actually the second person I ever baptized. And uh, we were sitting there having coffee one day, and Michael was sharing about things that he'd been going through recently in his life. He'd, he'd lost his marriage through a season of divorce. Several of his close friends who, like him, battled with depression had taken their own life. And he was in a dark and difficult place. And Michael said to me, Scott, I, I, I read what you write. At the time, I was actively blogging. He said, I listen to your messages. And when I come, Scott, what I'm looking for, you're not giving me. What I hear from you is what is wrong, what is broken, and what needs to be fixed. He said, but what I come and need from you and he said, Scott, where's the hope? Where's the hope? And I realized in that season that I had become an expert at pointing out all that was broken and wrong. And to be honest, that's the easy part. Anybody can point out what's wrong and broken. It's much harder to be a voice of hope and to see what's broken and recognize how it can be made whole to see what's not as it should be and work for its improvement and change. And in that season, I became convicted that I didn't just want to be the cynic. I wanted to be a voice of hope. 
In that season, God led me into the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, where Peter says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. I just want to pause right there. There's going to be times in our future, maybe even in our near future, where as followers of Jesus, we're going to suffer for righteousness. And what does Peter say? We'll be blessed. Now, I'll tell you, that verse is never going to be the main idea of a best-selling book in the New York Times. That, that verse, that idea, is never going to lead to a 30,000-member church. But it's true. We shouldn't fear suffering. God's blessing is with us in it. But he's not done. He says, do not fear them who bring suffering or be intimidated by them. But in your hearts, regard Christ as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. There's that voice of hope part. But watch what he says next. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence. Man, we need that word today. So often in our world, we, we're, we're right. We say what's true, especially in social media. But there's no gentleness and reverence. It's not enough to be right, according to 1 Peter. You have to also be right in a certain way. Keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. This is this calling that God has put in front of us. That even as we're facing and have to work through places where God is disciplining us, that we are to be people who hold on to hope, who have a reason for hope, that when people say, why are you so hopeful? We're prepared to answer them. And we do so with gentleness and reverence, with a clear conscience, so that when people try to accuse us, there is nothing to accuse us of. Friends, what God requires of his people is simple, but it's not easy. Let's talk about some next steps today before we close. Here's the first one. I want to invite you this week to memorize Micah 6.8. Memorizing scripture is an important part of hiding God's word in our heart, pursuing him, following him. And this verse, what does God require of you? What is good? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God is a verse you should memorize and know well. Number two, I want to encourage you to consider the state of your faith practice in light of the outward, inward, upward framework. So if you think about those three phrases with the words attached outward, inward, and upward this week, what I want you to do is spend some time reflecting, how am I doing outwardly? Am I doing justice? Am I treating people on their best days, their every days, and their worst days equally? Or has some amount of prejudice or bias entered into my thinking? Inwardly, am I loving what God loves or have my loves been more shaped by our world than God? And then with God, am I walking in humble modesty or am I walking with God in arrogance or pride? And use that framework, outward, inward, upward, to reflect on where you are in living out your faith. And then number three, recenter your hope and future expectations on the work of Jesus, the character of God, and the presence of the Holy Spirit. I've spent the last 12 years since that coffee shop conversation with Michael doing my best to be a voice of hope. 
I've not done it perfectly. Sometimes I feel like I've done it far from perfectly. But the seasons in which I've been more hopeful are the seasons that I've taken my hope off of things that can change and recentered my hope on things that can't. What Jesus did on the cross for us is never going to change. The character of God is never going to change. And if you are a follower of Jesus, he promised that he was going to leave us his Holy Spirit who would never leave us and never forsake us. What happens in our country is going to change. What you experienced when you are younger is going to be different than what you experienced when you are older. And if your hope is in those things, you are going to find it hard to remain hopeful. But our hope, according to 1 Peter and from Genesis to Revelation, is not found in anything that can be shaken or changed. Our hope is in the work of Jesus, in the character of God our Father, and of his presence that never leaves us and never forsakes us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time in an uncomfortable section of your word. We thank you that you um, are big enough that, that we have to step back and examine ourselves in light of who you are. We repent of the places in our lives where we've set our standard lower than you. We repent for the places where we've puffed ourselves up because we've compared ourselves to other people and not you. We repent for the places where we've become despondent and discouraged because we put our hope in something that was unworthy, that wasn't you. So we pray that we would not be like the people in Micah. We pray that we wouldn't tell you to quit your preaching to us when you discipline us. We pray that we wouldn't tune you out when you speak to us something we need to hear. And we pray that we would always have an answer for why we're hopeful about the future. Jesus, you are the only one who is worthy of our you're the only one who's worthy of our trust. You are the only one who's worthy of us surrendering our lives to. So today, we open ourselves up to you to convict and to challenge, to encourage and to build up, to transform and shape us into the people you made us to be. We pray that you would have your way in us and that we would have our eyes fixed on you. We look to you this day, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray.